Welcome to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast, where we have great conversations with unity-minded Christians. Our goal is to encourage unity of the Spirit within the Stone Campbell Movement and beyond. We believe unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and join us as we seek to fulfill Jesus' prayer that we may all be one. And now... Here are your co-hosts. Thank you for joining us for another episode of our Common Ground Unity podcast. We're glad to have each of you listening today, and I am thrilled to be joined by Tina Bruner for another week of co-hosting. Tina, welcome back. Thanks so much. I'm really glad to have been asked back. It's great to be here. How'd you like co-hosting last time? It was really great. You know, Megan is some pretty big shoes to fill. fill so, uh, I, and I hope she's listening. And uh, I was really blessed to get to see her at the Cane Ridge uh, Revival Celebration a couple weeks ago. And um, she's fantastic. So I really feel blessed to be able to... Um, to fill in and, and just be with you guys. How, how did the Cane Ridge celebration go? Oh my gosh, it was fantastic and hot. I don't know how <laughs> they fit so many people in there on those hard benches and whatever in the past, but they did a fantastic job. Megan did a great job. All the speakers were incredible. And um, Doug Foster, who's been on this podcast before, did an amazing um, kind of history, which included like tied the, the future to the past, which if, and what we talked about last week of starting in the past and moving forward, it was just interesting to, to hear, you know, how what's happening now was influenced so heavily about, by, by what happened then. Well, that, that is true. What a great experience. And I guess, uh, I guess brother stone never argued to uh, spring for some air conditioning, <laughs> For that building. No. Okay. Mm-mm. Well, never, no. never, never made it into the budget. No, I got to sit on the top floor and I was glad that somebody sprung for some steps because they said really in the time where they, that was functioning as their meeting house, that you had to go up a ladder and climb in the window to get up to the second floor. So I was like, wow. yeah, I'm glad they got, yeah. they have some steps this time. <laughs> that, that takes some commitment to go to the second yeah. floor. Exactly. Well. Well, Tina, so good to have you back. Glad you had that experience. And we've got the three great guys with us joining us again this week. Um, they are the hosts of the After Class podcast. And if you're joining us for the first time, we'll talk a little bit more about that podcast. But I want to encourage our listeners uh, to access that podcast. You're going to be blessed. You're going to be more informed. Um, you're going to be a better student of the word. And you can get it on any of the platforms for podcasts. I've got it on my Apple podcast system. So um, we've got Ron Peters back with us. All three of these guys, by the way, are uh, professors at Great Lakes Christian College, a, a college that serves Christian churches and churches of Christ. And it's got a unique mission. You can go back and listen to last week's podcast to hear a little bit more about it. But Ron Peters is a professor of New Testament there. Uh, John Nugent is a professor of Bible and theology. And then Sam Long is a uh, associate professor of Old Testament 
and ministry. So, man, we're, we're blessed with guys in each of these fields on that department um, to be with us. Welcome back, guys. Good to be back. Thanks for having us. <laughs> it is our pleasure. Well, we're looking forward to this uh, conversation. Tina, why don't you kick the conversation off? Well, we are talking today about women in the Bible, and you guys actually did a 14-episode series on this topic. <laughs> Was it so that congrats long? for being able Holy to cow. stretch it out. <laughs> yeah. those are uh, and that was five season episodes. two for those of you who want to go back and listen to it. But why do you think this subject is so important at this time in our history? Um, the church, well, I, spending a lot of time in the church over the years, and all of us have been ministers, uh, we see that, oh, this is Sam, by the way, for those who are just listening, uh, <laughs> we see that uh, there's there are a lot of a lot of holes in the church. There's a lot of ministry that is not being done because uh, not everyone seems to be allowed to do ministry. And so, for from my perspective, just seeing that and, and seeing um, just the need in the church, uh, talking about well, what what has God blessed women with, and what are their roles in the church, and, and what can they do in the church, and what should they do in the church, um, and it was some great conversations and, and empowers uh, women to participate in perhaps ways they have not before. And I think uh, this is John speaking, just mm-hmm. to tune into the different voices. Um, I think what's really interesting about the now moment is there's a lot of pressure from society mm-hmm. to kind of get with the times. Mm-hmm. And for, you know, women in society are able to do so many things, but there's a lot of pressure on the church to allow women to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's a lot of, especially in our churches that want to do Bible things in Bible ways. Yeah. We don't want to do things just because society right. wants us to. Right. You know, we want to do things because God wants us to, and it's in line with the scriptures. And so I think a lot of the confusion happening in the conversation about women and the church today is those with a conservative view, more restrictive view on women's not serving can often assume that those with a more open view toward women serving in more capacities are doing so simply because society is pressuring them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, we think it's a great time to have a conversation of setting that aside <laughs> What does the Bible say about it? And not just a few verses in the New Testament, but the whole uh, full scope of Scripture. What does that say about the topic? And bring that to bear on the decisions that we make. Yeah. Yeah, this is Ron. Uh, I'm talking with coffee cup in hand. So just wanted to put that out there. Glad to hear that. Yep, I love the theme of this podcast. I am a big coffee guy. But, um, you know, we're talking about it because churches are talking about it. And it's just this major question that people need an answer to from the Bible. And so one of the best ways we can serve the church is to bring all of our faculties to bear on this question, uh, three guys from three different disciplines, and, and just say, what does the Bible say? And then hand that off to the churches so that they can use that as a raw material to come to what they believe is the spirit-led conclusions for their congregations. So tell us a little bit about your approach. I've got to confess, I've I've just been getting into your podcast and binging a little bit, and you guys are now in the seventh season, which is amazing. Four, no, fourth season. Fourth, fourth season. season. Fourth. Oh, yep. Okay, well, I'm, I'm giving you you know, more longevity. <laughs> but, but how many episodes have you done? It's, I, maybe I've got it wrong there. It's like 170 or something like that. So Yeah, yeah it's got to be close, yeah. yeah. It sounds I, right. I mean, we haven't missed a week in, you know, so we've completed three years. We're into our fourth year, well over halfway. 
Okay. So 52 weeks a year times, you know, three and a half, you know, that's about, sounds about right. What you, that number you gave us. Well, then let me restate. I'm, I'm, I'm binging in your fourth season, whatever the most <laughs> the recent here. So to go back, this is in season two. And as mm-hmm. Tina mentioned, there were 14 episodes. So I've just kind of been able to touch a little bit uh, into that series and I'm looking forward to listening to it, but talk to us a little bit about your approach as you address the series. Uh, mentioned that the, in the last episode, uh, we were maybe halfway through it when we heard a very well-known popular preacher uh, on YouTube say, okay, we're going to look at what the Bible says about women. So open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 14, you know, and that just makes us, us throw up our hands and say, what are you doing? Our approach is a whole Bible approach. We started with Genesis 1, and the reason that series was so long is that we went through the Bible canonically and went through all the books and said, what does the Bible say about women and their place in God's creation, God's original intention, how the fall has affected the relationships between men and women and and how women have suffered in the fall and how God's kingdom is meant to redress the, the, the things that have happened in the fall. And what does the Bible give us as a vision for both men and women? And so it's a very holistic approach that requires you to enter the Bible story in, in its fullness before you address a, a, a text like 1 Corinthians 14 that is so specific to a specific church and a specific place with specific issues. And we spend a lot of time on the Old Testament. I, I think and it's so important to do that because I think most people are surprised to find out that there's no law in Torah that forbids women from teaching. Yeah. Or exercising leadership positions. Right. Uh, they just assume that that's a New Testament thing that continues an Old Testament prohibition. Uh, when in fact, when you study the Old Testament on its own terms, you find out, wow, there's women are serving in a wide variety of capacities. They're always the minority. Yeah. You know, there there are usually more men serving in leadership capacities than women, but women are showing up in a wide variety of places and and not in laws that are forbidding them from serving in those ways. Right. Yeah. Makes me think of you know who the the one who's quite possibly the best judge in judges, Deborah, who is a judge and a prophet, like she's mm-hmm. doing that dual role, and she's about the only judge that doesn't at some point end up looking really bad. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's true. Yeah. And so uh, I think that she is just a shining example of that. And and nobody in Israel seemed to think that was weird. Like oh, there's this woman who's judging, you know. And what does a judge do? Like a judge has to know the scriptures apply the scriptures, answer questions about how the scriptures apply to our lives. Like that's what a judge does. And nobody in Israel seemed to think it was strange that Deborah was engaged in this. In fact, they had tons of respect for her. In in fact, she seems to be doing that when you don't see the others who are called judges or deliverers doing that thing. Uh, yeah. She, she, she seems to be a little bit of a better model of that than say Jephthah or Samson or some of the others. So, <laughs> Without a doubt. Interesting observation. So anybody who listens to this series uh, will notice that you guys really are resistant to using complementarian or egalitarian. So what what is it about the labels that that you guys are trying to uh, like step away from them, or or how do you see not using those labels helping us see the scripture more in a more full way? I would say to start with the labeling sets up like competition. It sets up camps. It sets up friction. And especially for your podcast talking about unity, 
mm. the labeling's not going to be very helpful yeah. in the discussion. Agreed. Uh, and so we start with that. In addition, those terms aren't used in the Bible. Those understandings are very modern terms. And so to assume that you can just label it and it's, it goes through the entire Bible, uh, it, we, we, that's not our approach with any topic, but especially this one. Yeah, and some people assume that once you accept one of the labels, they know how you got there. Like right. they know where your mm -hmm. landing point is and they know how you got there. And again, because so many people have arrived at an egalitarian position through really sketchy exegesis, you know, like just <laughs> yeah. saying, well, the Old Testament's not relevant. We can block that right from the beginning. And the New Testament, well, you know, you can't take seriously anything Paul says because, you know, there are different <laughs> ways people arrive at conclusions. Mm -hmm. And um, we, our process is very deliberate and holistically canonical. And, and so, I think people who listen to the whole podcast series will say, man, I heard you say so, a lot of complementarian things or things that would be mm -hmm. congruent with that. And I heard you th say a lot of things that would be congruent with an egalitarian view of things. Yeah. And so I, I don't think our, our goal in the series was to arrive at which one we like better mm -hmm. as much mm -hmm. as to say, all right, we're done with the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. the kind of thing it says. <laughs> These are the kind of questions it leaves us with. These are the kind of opportunity it presents us with. Now it's for the church to discern uh, how that applies to them in their time and place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just hate labels of all sorts, mm -hmm. you know, you know, whether it be those, you know, liberal, conservative, you know, progressive, libertarian, like we have in politics, you know, theological labels like, you know, reform or Calvin or whatever. Like as soon as you use a label, people think they know what you are. They think they know who you are and what you think and what you believe. Well, and it depends never... on their experience with pe people with those labels. You know, yeah. when you talk yeah. about, even yeah. in the Stone Campbell movement, when you talk about, like for me, if you were to say something about the non-instrumental Church of Christ, I have, even though that's an identifier and not necessarily the same way we're using label, but because of the way I define that, I already have a, a whole set of things just based on, the limited experience I have, like saying that, that everything about that is like this. And, yeah. and that is what it seems like to me too, when we look at the, the way we, we feel the need to put things in a bucket um, so that it's like, but we're not always talking about the same thing. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you, when you see those labels, complementarian, egalitarian, that's, you assume that that's their answer. Whenever the question is brought up, yes, women cannot do this, 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 or yes, women can do this. And that's really not what you find in the New Testament. You find Paul, you know, saying in this congregation, given its uniqueness and context, he recommends this kind of way for women to function. And in this other congregation with a different set of opportunities and challenges, women seem to be functioning in different ways. And, and so, it's, you know, there's this mm -hmm. sense in which Paul is being guided by the Spirit to lead different congregations, to have the form of leadership that best fits their situation given the uniquenesses of their situation. And he may in one in one congregation come out in a place that, you know, complementarians would say, Yeah, you know, that's it, that's our position. <laughs> right. And in another congregation say something that, wow, that's very egalitarian. And mm -hmm. the complementarians wouldn't like that at all. Yeah. And and so it I guess, and this gets down to congregationalism, like believing that the Holy Spirit is the one who's raising up leaders in different contexts to lead specific churches in specific challenges and opportunities, uh, that doesn't lead to a one-size-fits-all position on how one gender serves. Yeah. And as a Bible scholar, it's always really exciting for me to appreciate more and more the unique situations that the, the biblical texts address. 
So 1 Corinthians written to a church in Corinth, you know, 1 Timothy written to Timothy serving in Ephesus. And as you begin to understand the broader, you know, like the culture and like sort of the news that's happening in that area, it's like, wow, you know, Christians in this area, we're dealing with this, but Christians over here, we're dealing with something else. Mm -hmm. And that, that just enriches the Bible story instead of homogenizing everything as if every book of the Bible was written to address the same thing in the same context to see the richness of the, the different situations to, and just as John said, for churches to go, wow, you know, this small church in rural Northern Michigan is probably going to be facing some different challenges than an urban church in the middle of Detroit. And they're, they might have to do things differently because that's how the spirit is working in those situations. And the new Testament actually bears witness to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, for me, like I said, I find that really exciting. I'd like to add one more thing. And that is that one of the ways that this topic is approached that goes wrong is it just focuses on the topic of women in ministry Mm -hmm. narrowly. Yeah. And, and really the role of women and men in ministry is part of a wider topic of what the Bible says about power and authority. Yeah, mm. There's a wider subject of God's vision of power and authority in general, from Genesis through Revelation, is fundamentally different than the world's vision of power and authority. Big time. And, and mm-hmm. so with many people, the issue they need to wrestle with is not whether a woman, there could be one woman to serve in positions of power and authority over men for every man who's in a position of power and authority <laughs> over a woman. It's, you know, both are wrong because they have this notion that God has appointed people with power and authority over others in the body of Christ. And that's a fundamentally, fundamentally messed up vision yeah. of ecclesiology and the church's nature and mission. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That for me, like that was one of the most transformational moments for me in the whole conversation when the light of that revelation kind of burst into my brain. As soon as somebody says, Hey, I'm the boss how that person has deviated from God's vision for his people. Mm. You know, I'm in charge and your job is to do what I say. Really? Where do you get that from the Bible? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And when you begin to see the emphasis on lowliness, meekness, slave disposition, you know, mm-hmm. like all that kind of stuff. Like if I don't have the right to boss people around and nobody in the church is supposed to try to take that role on, some of these arguments immediately shrivel up and die because they've got, like, there's just nothing to do with them. So you all just said some interesting things about authority and power, which which also gets at the larger discussion of how we see leadership in the church and governance in the church. Um, let's, let's go in a little bit of a different direction. Most streams of the Stone Campbell movement hold to a congregational model of governance. Um, talk to us about the pros and cons to this model as we navigate through for what are, are many of us difficult and challenging conversations? Yeah, I, I think our congregationalism is one of the strengths and unique contributions of the Stone Campbell tradition. Uh, not that we're the only ones that are like that, mm-hmm. um, but we've kind of stuck to it <laughs> more consistently and persistently over time. And, and I think it's so important for maintaining unity. 
Uh, because where a lot of congregations um, find themselves split and where denominations go separate ways is trying to fit you know, a, a rigid grid, a theological grid or a practical grid on all congregations, mm. you know, where they can, a denomination can have a divide right in half over the issue of women in leadership. Mm. Um, because by default, they're set up, they need a kind of unified position on it that is practiced in all the churches. And we can take a tough topic like that and see that, you know, there are Bible passages that, that suggested in some congregations, women are serving in in more uh, greater leadership capacities and other congregations there's not. And, and it seems like that's being situationally discerned that we as independent Christian churches have the ability to say, you know, in our congregation, God has raised up women who are serving in, in incredible ways. And, and they're not here to take over power from the men. <laughs> in fact, the men don't have that kind of power. Right. Yeah. What power to take. <laughs> um, but that their their leadership is growing organically out of the life of the church and the gifting that God has given them. And and congregationally, that church can discern whether God has given us this woman to serve in this capacity, just like we do for every man mm. who might be serving in a capacity and say, yes, yes, she is. And let's let her thrive in that area. But when, you know, when the denominational hierarchy says you can't do that uh, because you couldn't do that in all of the churches because yeah. it wouldn't work in all the churches. It can't happen in any of the churches. Right. Well, in yeah. a congregational model, it doesn't have to work in all of the churches for it to be right for this church. And I think that's one of the strengths. Yeah. I had to play a little devil's advocate. I totally agree with John on all those things. A con would be if it's not working like it's supposed to be, if it's not being spirit led where there's humility and meekness, but there are strong personalities, they could take a church down a wrong path and there's no checks and balances. Um, and, and again, if it's working like it's supposed to, that doesn't happen. But I think anyone who's had any experience in the church has seen that that doesn't always work that well. Yeah. I think one of the pros <clears throat> is it's so easy to defend biblically. Going all the way back to Israel, you know, um, so often Christians don't realize that Israel is in so many ways the paradigm that the church takes up for understanding what it means to be God's kingdom and the people of God. And like in early, in Israel's history, uh, when they started out, they were just this loose confederation of not just tribes, but towns and villages and, and larger communities with no centralized government whatsoever. And they would rally together when there was a big need. And when that need, when the crisis was over, so to speak, then they go back to that kind of small self-governance. That seems to be the way God wanted them to operate. It's like when they become, when the monarchy comes in, that's when everything starts to go wrong, you know, centralized authority and central government and all that. Uh, that seems to be a departure from God's plan for what his people are supposed to look like. And so I think one of the pros is that it's really easy to, to see that model in scripture from Israel all the way through to the New Testament and to show that when you deviate from that to some sort of centralized authority, that's when things begin to go off the rails. You yeah. know, Kevin mentioned that, you know, how, what are the pros and cons as we navigate difficult conversations. But what do you guys say about churches that are very traditional and they're not having these difficult discussions? They're not, they're not wrestling with the nuances of, of kind of like what, what's so beautiful and one of the pros of being able to discern for your particular congregation. How do members of a congregation approach those with the leaders to, to start having some of those difficult conversations? Yeah. And I think, those difficult conversations should be happening in those churches if they're growing out of the life of those churches. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, That's what I was if thinking. people are not asking those questions there, 
who's to say they need to have this conversation right now? <laughs> yeah. I mean, even though it's it's really important for these other congregations to be having this conversation. In that in that congregation, it's just not a bubbling over issue. So I think the danger is when there are people raising those conversations. There are people asking those difficult questions, and there's no space in that church's life for those questions to be asked and discussed in a respectful way. That's when it really becomes a problem. That, that's when voices are not being heard, yeah. and leaders are serving to silence the voices of people who have the Spirit, Yeah, that God might be tapping them on the shoulder and say, hey, God wants us to have these conversations, and if people are shutting them down, then that whole church is not following the biblical model of uh, every member ministry, of every member empowered by the Spirit, of, you know, call no man father, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles exercise authority over one another. Not so among you. Yeah. And so there has to be space for those conversations when they're being, they're raised up out of the church's life. But I just want to be careful not to assume that not all conversations, congregations are ready for that conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I, I thought the exact same thing, you know, yeah. some kind of group, it's like, nobody wants to like, and it, like, I don't mean that in a negative way. It's like, mm -hmm. nobody's going, Oh, we need to talk about this. Like they're okay with what's going on. It's like, all right, you know, cool. If you're okay, then let's not create a problem. If you okay. don't, if you're not ready for it, you're just not there yet. Mm -hmm. So what suggestions do you have for our listeners on how we can like how we can have civil and spiritual dialogue about not just women in the Bible. There's so many topics that can lead to like people going into their camps. How can we respectfully have these conversations at the congregational level, but also just as brothers and sisters in Christ across all three streams? Yeah, I think I think what's missing in, in a lot of conversations, congregations who aren't having these conversations is just a place for that conversation to happen. You know, like one hour once a week often is like it's too there's too much space in between these one hour conversations and it takes mm. you a few minutes to get wimed up and then you got to wind down at the end. It's like you really got a half hour of quality talk a week about any given topic. Mm. And some topics just require a retreat. They require <laughs> mm -hmm. getting away, going and our church has had multiple retreats where we go to a camp nearby and you spend a whole weekend on a topic like leadership. Our church spent a whole weekend on a topic of women in leadership, and then and we weren't done, and we had multiple long full day seminars, like on a Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon break, have lunch together, have dinner together later on, mm -hmm. where we just dedicate the kind of space that's required to follow a conversation all the way through, yeah. And just these little half hour bursts just aren't enough, I think, to engineer the kind of not engineer, that's not what we want to do, but create space for the kind of paradigm shifts that happen when you have quality immersion in a topic. Yeah, I think that's part of why it took 14 episodes for mm -hmm. the women, because it's not a 30-minute Bible study. Yeah, it, it, it can't happen because you can't get all the information into people's heads because, as you, as you just said, the people are coming at it with different viewpoints, and they're more concerned about making sure their viewpoint is right than just saying, okay, what does the Bible say about this? And the Bible says a lot. Yeah. And it's got to take time and dedication to it where, I mean, to be honest, a lot of people aren't up for that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a dead, it's a sacrifice of time and, and energy to do it. And so most churches go with the easier model of, well, we'll just kind of tell you what to think and move on. Yeah. And I think it requires a, a certain disposition. Um, you know, new ideas can be scary. Uh, I get that. I, I, I never want to like condemn people for being really, sort of like emotionally worked up by uh, an idea that really challenges a long-held view. Uh, 
that's that's hard. You know, I think that, that two th- two dispositional traits that generally characterize people who are willing to entertain new ideas are humility and curiosity. Like you have to be humble enough to go, whatever I think could be wrong. I might not actually be thinking the way God does or, or his word speaks to us. Plus being curious, am I wrong? Like I, I try to like just live that out. You know, sometimes when I'm wrestling with a topic, I'll just go, okay, just as a mental exercise, I'm going to approach this as if everything I've ever thought was wrong and kind mm-hmm. of start from scratch. Not that that's always true, but as a, like I said, it's, it's a way of starting fresh uh, on topics. And a lot of times I've come out the end right where I was at the beginning, sometimes slight modification. And sometimes it's like, wow, the Bible has really taken me a new direction. But it's it requires that kind of a disposition. And it, it, I guess I say humility, curiosity, and courage. You mm-hmm. know, it is it is scary. I totally understand that it's scary sometimes. And people feel like there's a threat in this. And they're afraid of what are we going to lose if we go down this road? And so, you know, humility, curiosity, and courage, I think, are really strong, important dispositions to be able to to navigate those kinds of situations. That's really powerful. Yeah, I'm just so, uh, I'm even more excited now to listen to more of your all's podcast and also to recommend it to other people. Hope our listeners will uh, dive in and then model what you all are modeling for us. Uh, I think that is... Um, important thing for our Tom. What what are your all's hopes for the future of the Stone Campbell movement? What do you hope it looks like in the future? <laughs> wow. That's a good question. That's a good yeah, question. in three words or less each one. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh I gave a presentation at a we have a restoration appreciation week at the college and um at that week we uh just highlight you know, the history of the movement and the future of the movement. And we have different addresses and, you know, and I, I had a session about, you know, why we need a new wave of restorationism. Yeah. And, and in that, I, I said, we need to double down on our strengths and, and then we need to figure out how to remain connected to one another. And, and I think, you know, doubling down on our strengths means that, you know, we're a tradition that doesn't have a lot that other traditions have. We don't have as long of a history. We don't have as as great a giant of major thinkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have a key person in the rest in the Reformation period to attach <laughs> our our horse to or a cart. Um, but we have the Bible, and yeah. it's like all we have, and it's our doubling down on the scriptures and having a scriptural worldview that that because it's the only thing we have we focus on it in a way that other churches don't. I've studied in not, you know, uh, institutions inside the restoration movement and outside. And for other traditions, uh, you just don't talk about the Bible as much. There's a lot more talk about history. There's a lot more talk about what the confessions are saying and the polity or the upcoming conference. Mm -hmm. But what I've studied at our institutions, there is just an intense focus on the Bible. It's what we do best because it's all we really have to focus on. And so I think, you focus on what you have. And and that's our unique contribution is how much we obsess about the Bible <laughs> yeah. is, is a good contribution that we make to other traditions. And I hope we can double down on that. Yeah. I remember that. Uh, I remember John and I talking about that, you know, that speech, new wave of restorationism. And I was so fired up. I 
what he said there, because that's what drew me to the restoration movement. I grew up in uh, a different tradition. And then like I went from one denomination to another one. Like I was for my first 18 years, I was one denomination for the next 18 years. I was another denomination. Uh, but I, I, I was drawn to the restoration movement because of its lack of theology, so to speak. It's lack of, you know, luminaries uh, like others with like Calvin or Luther or something like that. And I was just like, these people just read the Bible and that's it. That's, that's all we have. And I was like, that was me. I kind of felt like I was alone in these other traditions because that's all I want to do. I just want to talk about the Bible. I didn't want to superimpose some sort of theological grid on it and then have to read it through that. And I, and the restoration movement didn't do that. I'm like, wow, I want to be a part of this. And I have been for almost 18 years now. My my hope um, kind of builds on what they said about taking the Bible, but then engaging our culture with it. I feel like a lot of our churches have done a poor job of that in the, in the recent past. And I would love to see the future where we take the Bible seriously, but we take the culture seriously as well. And we uh, do a better job of meeting people where they're at. Uh, I think too often we see a failure on both sides where we care too much about engaging culture where the Bible gets kind of put to the side and the other where, well, the Bible says it. And so you guys are all wrong. So it's <laughs> bad news for you. Um, I'd like to see the restoration movement be that place where people say, man, they love the Bible. They understand the Bible and they can relate to us as a culture. And the second thing that I brought up, and I, it, it's part of my continued hope, is that we can't drift away in isolation. Yeah. You know, our congregationalism can become a silo. Yeah. You know, one congregation separated from another, not to mention one denomination separated from the others. Um, and we, I think, also need to double down on our structures of unity. You know, We don't have hierarchical structures of unity that kind yeah. of impose unity from on high, <laughs> but we have voluntary, not required, structures of unity like Christian colleges. Christian camps, like, you know, the common grounds podcast, unity podcast, like these are your participation in them is voluntary, but they are so vital for you staying connected uh, to other Christians from within the same denomination and, and helps our unique voice, our unique emphasis on the scripture uh, be amplified enough to be heard by those outside of our tradition. Yeah. And that's where I think congregationalism can be really, really powerful because when you don't have the forced unity of we're part of a denomination and we're under the umbrella of this, the central government, what is going to bring you together? Um, I was just thinking about this like just a few days ago and I wrote down a bunch of notes for uh, an upcoming, you know, uh, episode of my YouTube channel, but the idea that um, oftentimes other Christians either offend us or embarrass us. And like, there are a lot of people right now who don't even want to call themselves Christians because they, they're like, if I call myself a Christian, I'm going to be associated with these really embarrassing Christians, people who understandably you're embarrassed by. And it's like, but they're still your brothers and sisters. Like, I get it. I understand what it is to be embarrassed by their Christians or sometimes even offended by them. But I can't just cut them off. They're still my brothers and sisters. Mm. And that is what really defines us. You know, Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. And when the world sees us loving our brothers and sisters, even when we go, yeah, I didn't like that thing that he or she did or that group did, but I still call them brothers and sisters. Uh, A congregational model forces us to unite by that bond of like love and mutual commitment, even when we might be struggling with something that would otherwise divide us. And if we can pull that off, 
what would that look like to the broader, uh, you know, world of the church who go, these guys are so unified and they don't have anything but love that's doing it. Guys, this is good stuff. And this has been a great conversation and uh, I've loved having you um, on, on this broadcast and giving us the opportunity for those in our listening audience that uh, haven't known you guys and known about your podcast. Many probably already do, but for those who don't, to get to know you. Um, and I hope you'll come back sometime in the future. Um, but we've got to bring this conversation to a close. Um, our guests have been Ron Peters. Ron, in a sentence or two, tell us a little bit about, you have a YouTube channel, Radio Free uh, Ecclesia. So tell us just a bit about that. Uh, it's something that I actually put on hold for quite a while. Hopefully by the time this episode airs, uh, I'll be back into it. But it's just, it, it grows out of my my view of being a believer as being a citizen of God's kingdom, that to be a Christian is to proclaim Christ as king, a sole exclusive allegiance to him as king, a sole exclusive allegiance to his kingdom, and viewing ourselves as people who are basically living in enemy-occupied territory. This is God's world, but it's currently occupied by uh, an enemy occupational force. And how do we live out a witness to something greater as God's kingdom within that context? And so that's kind of the theme of it. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting back to it here pretty quick. I'll look it up. And John, you've got a website, johnnugent.net. Tell us just a little bit about what people will find there. I use it mainly to help people find access like articles I've written or um, some blog posts and and in touch with some of my books. Um, that, that website really focuses on my book, Endanger Gospel, How Fixing the World is Killing the Church. So it's a way to get in touch with what I've written. I've written also a commentary and, and a book on uh, the politics of Yahweh, kind of studying ecclesiology from an Old Testament perspective. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a way to keep in touch with what my writing projects are and uh, some resources that I use in the classroom that, that students keep calling me and saying, hey, can I have that handout you use or whatever? I just, I start posting those things online as resources and, and send people to them. Good. Well, that may bless some of our listeners as well. Your your books are, uh, you've got a commentary on Genesis 1 through 11, uh, The Endangered Gospel and Politics of Yahweh. So folks may want to pick those books up as well. Sam, you got any websites, YouTube channels, books you want to mention? I do not. Uh, I spend most of my time uh, disc golfing with students. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, what about a TikTok channel? Uh, definitely, no. I, I'm not a big fan of the TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're also the VP of Academic Affairs. You've you've got a lot on your plate there. Yes. So uh, yeah, that, that keeps you busy. Yeah, absolutely. That's your second full time job. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. man, no kidding. Well, so good to have you guys with us, folks. Again, the podcast is the after class podcast. You can find it on all the podcast platforms. And there are four seasons, so a lot of episodes to listen to. Um, Tina, good to have you back and hope you'll return and join me again in the future at some point when I the opportunity so avails itself. Sounds good. good. Anything you want to say to our folks before we get away? Uh, go grab yourself a cup of coffee with someone who is not like you. Amen. Hey, and that, that leads me to this. Our philosophy is unity starts with a cup of coffee. Just going out to a coffee house, sitting down with a brother or sister and building a relationship. Um, so if I were to sit down with you, Ron or John or Sam, and have a cup of coffee, here's the question we always end our broadcast with. How do you take your coffee? 
<laughs> so if I'm bringing coffee from home, it's just black. If I'm going to a coffee shop, usually a cappuccino or a cortado. Gotcha. That sounds exotic. Cortado. Okay. So that was I, you, Ron. I, John, do not drink coffee. Uh, All right. There's my brother. I don't drink coffee either. So. Oh, but, man. But it's almost heresy. Peanut butter flavored hot chocolate. Yeah. Oh, my it, goodness. I haven't tried that, but I will. My vice of choice. It, it, <laughs> it doesn't sound bad. It's not the fruit of the bean, but it sounds uh, pretty good. Sam, what about you? I also cannot stand the taste of coffee. Uh, <sighs> so I usually get a uh, chai latte with a shot of blackberry. Yep. Oh. At our, right. Yep. At our at our nearby coffee shop that we go to all the time, it is the Sam. That yes, drink is the Sam. Ask for the Sam. Oh, that, yep. Oh, and that's great. Hot chocolate is the Nuge. The so Nuge. Yep. We have all three have special drinks at a coffee shop because we recognize the value of standing together with a mug. It just doesn't have to be coffee in it. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Ma maybe we need to change the philosophy of this that unity starts with a mug in hand. And, uh, <laughs> allow for a little unity and diversity there. Well, guys, great to have you with us. Folks, I hope you'll be back with us next week for another Common Grounds Unity podcast. Have a great week this week. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. There are plenty of resources, and you can subscribe to the weekly email articles. Join the Facebook group or find our YouTube channel. We've also provided a link in the show notes for comments. You can ask questions or suggest topics and guests. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can do that too through the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.